accommodated Dr. Nichols, Bob Dodson and Art Owen for a southern foray down the western side of the peninsula. While Dr. Nichols received official recognition as trail leader, the party was really under Kevin Walton's guidance as he possessed the only experience among the team. Walton spent a lot of time assessing equipment proposed for the journey and trying to convince Dr. Nichols to accept British substitutes with known reliability, particularly when the alternatives put forward included a tent of the same model that blew apart at the plateau, both in 1941 and more recently when used by Peterson and Dodson. He eventually managed to substitute his own sledge for an American one, trading off running his dogs on the rare pemmican rations and according to the rare mode, which he later realised didn't exist in any formal sense. While the FIDS wrote down everything that did and did not work in the field, and why, the rare operated on a more ad hoc basis. They kept no detailed records of field practices they employed, and didn't consult previous expeditions literature for insights. The rare personnel would run a 15-dog team, towing a repaired Usasay sledge. Finn Ronnie intended sending Larry Fisk and Walter Wood in a weasel out 10 days after the dog teams departed, hauling avgas, stove fuel and trail rations, and aiming to catch the dog teams up at the transition onto the ice in King George VI Sound. The dogs, weasels and the Norsemen would then relay stores to the furthest south point achieved by Stevenson during the BGLE, at which the dog teams would haul the 200 miles east to reach Mount Tricorn on the Waddell seaside of the peninsula. Further air supplies of food and fuel to afford further progress south would fly in aboard the Norsemen, allowing the sledges to act as ground control and as rescue party for the trimetragon flights by the Beechcraft. Finn Ronnie planned it all meticulously, calculating, for example, that it took 7 gallons of avgas to place 15 pounds of pemmican at Mount Tricorn. But he didn't factor in capricious Antarctic weather changes, making such calculations worthless in the face of circumstances his previous experience should have prepared him for. The nominated departure date of the 5th of September struck Finn Ronnie as too late in the season, so he brought it forward a week. The nominated departure date, the 29th of August, struck the FIDS as too early, the sea ice still showing as too thin to work over without risk of blowing out to sea. Kevin Walton requested a support party comprising John Tonkin and Mac in the hope this might buy them some time by setting back trail preparations. Finn Ronnie refused to budge on the date, though he later relented by allowing a 10-hour delay to wait for daybreak on the 30th, after Kevin Walton argued a good case that demanding a 100-day voyage start at exactly 2 o'clock in the afternoon bordered on taking the piss, or something to that effect, if not to that exact wording. On the day after their departure, Tommy Thompson, unable to continue flying stores to the plateau due to strong headwinds at altitude, flew John Tonkin south along the proposed sledging route. Tonkin felt pleased to see the sea ice conditions considerably better than just a week earlier, but still felt concerned that a good strong blow from the east might see the entire expanse of sea ice depart westward, taking him and everyone in his care with it. One of John Tonkin's dogs received sufficient mauling in a fight that the support party returned to Stonington Island after only a day on the sea ice, saving the dog's mangled foot from amputation, but cutting Walton's party off from the material and emotional support 
Tonkin's team offered his own. This turned out a moot point though, as the trail party returned after only 8 days into their proposed 100 day foray, due to poor sea ice conditions, ineffectual tents, and shitty batches of pemmican for both dogs and men. Dr Nichols joined the Antarctic Swimmers Club through a dunking near the sea ice edge between Nini Island and Red Rock Ridge, when he removed his skis near an open lead and promptly broke through the thin ice beneath him. As the party reached Red Rock Ridge on their return journey, they ran into Larry Fisk in the Weasel, en route to recall them on Finn Ronnie's orders. Ronnie later accused Kevin Walton of sabotaging the entire journey, and refused to listen to any of the party's reasoning for their turning back, focusing on the citations of the pemmican recipe rather than the state of the sea ice he sent the party out onto so early in the season, and pretending his own recall order never happened. Relations between the Fids and the Rare fell apart again, mostly because Finn Ronnie felt so spuriously aggrieved over Kevin Walton's decision to pull the pin on the trail party the American leader pinned a lot of hope on for substantial extensions further south than the USSA reached in the Weddell Sea. Fraternisation between the bases ended for a few days. Finn Ronnie's coldness towards the Fids thawed from the potential heat of embarrassment he faced if he returned north with nothing achieved. He suggested flying the dogs over to the Weddell Sea coast, but Major Butson nixed this, as he didn't like the attendant survey plan which saw the FIDs working over territory already surveyed by the USASA. Eventually, Finn Ronnie conceded to Major Butler's plan to establish depots at the Plateau Weather Station, Cape Keeler and Mount Tricorn, using the single-engine aircraft, and to work dog teams across the peninsula to spread out and provide ground control for survey flights. Tommy Thompson and Chuck Adams flew stores to the weather station site depot at the Plateau Camp in the Oster and the L5 respectively, establishing a more substantial tent than the one used in the last outing to the site, and caching stores for Ken McLeod and Walter Wood to use while making MET reports for the longer range flights. During one depot mission, Chuck Adams backed into the spinning propeller of his own aircraft while trying to break the L5's skis out of the snow. He threw himself flat when he realised the danger, but the prop tip cut through his helmet, took a chunk out of his scalp, and tore at the neck of his parka. Chagrined, and likely more than a little dazed, he staunched the bleeding by tying his scarf around his scone and flew home. The Cape Keeler depot flight went even worse. According to the plan, Tommy Thompson, piloting the Oster, was to find, land on, inspect, and if the site proved up to receiving the Norsemen, mark out a runway on which the larger aircraft, carrying the depot load and most of the safety equipment for both airframes, might land safely, lighting a smoke flare to show the wind speed and direction as a final flourish. With both planes reliant on each other to this extent, the flight required close coordination, though it never received it. Finn Ronnie arrived at Trapassi House during lunch on the 15th of September, to announce that the weather looked good for the Cape Keeler flight, and that the Norsemen would be ready in 10 minutes. The FIDs argued they should wait until the following day and make use of more hours of daylight. The rare leader urged urgency to establish Cape Keeler and make the most of the meteorological forecasting the site offered to facilitate survey flights in the Beechcraft. 
The fits conceded and Tommy Thompson ran his pre-flight routine and checks to start up ice-cold cakey. The name conferred on the Oster, which as far as I can tell, arose from a song by the same name, generally associated with Hattie McDaniels in the musical Thank Your Lucky Stars, becoming airborne 20 minutes after Finn Ronnie's urgent lunchtime interruption. Bernard Stonehouse and Reggie Freeman flew with him. Tommy climbing the Oster to the plateau to check the weather from the east from altitude. The sky over the Weddell Sea appeared clear, and Thompson, flying the slower of the two aircraft and concerned about fuel consumption, set course for Cape Keeler, radioing his intention to Trapassi House and expecting the Norsemen to catch up along the way. Meanwhile, the aviation contingent at East Base argued against taking to the air so late in the day. The Oster departing east tied the rare aviator's hands, but the Norseman's heavier engine, stored outdoors, took longer to heat to a starting temperature and held a far greater thirst for warm oil. It took time to get the thing cranking. The Norseman took off with James Lasseter in the left seat and Ike Schlossback as co-pilot, a full two and a half hours after the Oster departed. Jenny Darlington recorded Harry as saying the noise of the Norseman's takeoff rang in his head like a dentist's drill. Everything he tried to bring to the rare aviation program went out the window because of unnecessary hurrying and poor communication. He didn't bear responsibility for what came next, but that doesn't stop someone with that degree of personal integrity feeling it right through to their bones. Thompson's radioed intentions never reached James Lasseter, who began the Norseman's flight under the impression the two aircraft would rendezvous over the plateau. Ike Schlossback didn't think this made sense, as picking out another aircraft over the snow and ice in the mountains stood as near to impossible as makes no odds, but from the right seat, such opinions count for less than those of the pilot. With the radios in each aircraft set to communicate with their respective bases, the crew in the Norsemen couldn't call Tommy and Co. back, so when they failed to find the Oster above the plateau, no option but flying on in diminishing light existed. On reaching Cape Keeler, Lasseter and Schlossback couldn't see anything indicating the Oster landed, and so flew on, heading south to Cape Rymill on the chance the Fids flew there by mistake. No sign of the Oster there, either. With the light all but gone, winds increasing and clouds gathering, they turned the Norseman west and returned to Stonington Island, fully laden with equipment and foreboding. With little equipment and no stove fuel, the missing FIDs faced cold times unless they could tweak their primus to run on Avgas. With the Oster still absent that night, a blizzard blew in. Repeated radio calls failed to raise Thompson & Co. A British ship did hear the broadcasts out of Stonington and relayed them to the Falkland Islands, where Sir Miles requested twice-daily updates on the situation playing out in his extended backyard. From there, the news spread north and nightly BBC World Service broadcasts arrived at Stonington Island to remind everyone, still no sign of the missing aircraft. Meanwhile, from the Oster's perspective, Tommy Thompson landed the Oster at Cape Keeler and the party marked out a runway and wind indicators for the Norseman's arrival. They saw the Norseman overfly the site, but couldn't attract its attention. The buff-coloured Oster didn't show against the snow 
and the smoke flare didn't make enough contrast in the failing light to draw the airborne eye. They waited an hour for the Norseman to return, which it didn't, before firing up the Oster and heading for Stonington as fast as its little gypsy major engine could push it, which wasn't very fast, and certainly not fast enough to make headway against the headwind pushing east off the plateau, and the downdrafts preventing their climbing above the problem. Thompson turned south and found weaker winds over the hump, allowing a transit to the western side of the peninsula, though snow began to gather in the engine intake, and his companions experienced air sickness as the tiny machine blew around the Antarctic sky. Following the coast north towards Stonington, the gathering darkness, the spluttering engine trying to inhale through its increasingly snow-choked intake, and the densening snowfall reducing visibility to almost nil, forced an attempted landing on the sea ice. One of the Oster's skis clipped a bergy bit during the descent, ripping the undercarriage off and flipping the airframe to the ice on its back with enough force to bend every component. No ingenious Flight of the Phoenix resurgence for that little buff duck. Reg Freeman received an injury to one shoulder, but everyone crawled out of the wreckage under their own power. The radio receiver still worked, but the transmitter did not, so they knew about the search efforts but couldn't contribute to their own salvation. After a night in their one-man pup tent and one sleeping bag and liner, the trio decided to head for home on foot, snowfall through the night having already made the aircraft wreckage effectively invisible, and the site holding no natural resources to afford their survival. They made a sled out of the aircraft's fuel tank and began hauling their meagre supplies and survival equipment north along the coast. Without skis or snowshoes, and rationed to three ounces of pemmican a day, this proved a miserable slog. A three-day storm pinned them in the pup tent, the walls pressing in as the snow drifted over it. Awakening to silence, Tommy Thompson urged his companions out and moving, aware, among the befuddlement of hunger and cold, just how easy falling further asleep must be in their state. He felt himself shutting down, but wasn't yet ready to give up. A full week and 70 miles into this misery, the sleeping bag froze to the point of uselessness, so the three men walked on without sleep, their food almost finished, zombieing along on the sea ice. At least the gale cleared away the soft snow, affording them less wearying and damp footfalls. After three days of storms preventing local flying, Lassiter and Adams took the Norsemen, unladen but for survival gear, along the eastern coast of the peninsula. Harry Darlington suggested a square search as per naval SOPs for such situations, but the army pilots didn't know what he was talking about, and Finn Ronnie was ignoring him, so the ad hoc coast search had to suffice. Repeated attempts to cross to the Waddell seaside of the peninsula in the L5 received rebuffs from the headwinds Chuck Adams faced once at altitude. John Tonkin estimated a dog team rescue party needed at least two weeks to reach Cape Keeler, offering a further ten days of searching based on minimum sledge loads to maximise daily distances. Flying the dogs to the plateau offered scope to extend this, but it was decided the aircraft's time and fuel was better spent in aerial searches. The L5 and the Norsemen flew John Tonkin, Dougie Mason and Art Owen to Cape Keeler with the Rares SCR694 radio set, 
and enough stores and fuel to act as a depot for further aerial searching, Tonkin establishing their camp in a large igloo using the radio callsign Radio City. On the eighth day after the crash, the Oster party came upon a seal basking near its haul-out hole. Reg Freeman began sneaking up on it with the ice axe, but returned to his companions, concerned his crook shoulder might prevent a killing blow before the animal hauled back in again. Thompson, starving and unnecessarily anxious over his role in their predicament, tore over to the seal and nearly took its head off with the ice axe, venting his spleen and landing them sustenance in one action. They ate the liver and cut up steaks to carry with them. Shortly after this, as they tramped over the sea ice and munched on their hard-won and still warm and bloody bounty, they heard the Norsemen inbound and lit the last smoke flare. Lassiter spotted the smoke. On landing, John Tonkin burst from the plane's doors to greet his gaunt compatriots, who downplayed their saga with typical British understatement. Reggie Freeman said, Glad to see you, chaps. I could do with a bottle of brandy and some sleep. Tommy Thompson said, That's the last time I'll fly. To which Lassiter responded, Well, buddy, so long. It's a long walk home, as he turned and feigned heading back to the aircraft. Thompson tried to run after him on weak legs. Wait, this time's an exception. The three men, each around 20 pounds lighter and each experiencing minor frostbite damage to their feet, came as close to death as it's possible to do and still tell anyone about it. The sea ice Lassiter lifted them from blew out to sea in a blizzard that night. Lassiter and Adams each received the Distinguished Flying Cross for their efforts in the rescue flights. The FIDs wrote down every relevant fact and factor about the flight that might prove of use to the future FIDs. Never fly without emergency gear, regardless of how much this limits the fuel, personnel or cargo quotient of the flight. If aircraft to provide mutual support, the flight must be planned by both crews in concert and flown exactly as planned, from takeoff to landing. A weak or unreliable radio is a greater liability than flying with no radio. Finn Ronnie learnt far less from this episode. Instead, the accident and subsequent search efforts cost his precious survey program so much time and fuel that he pressed ever harder to make use of what time and fuel remained, placing the aviators and trail parties in situations where mutual support was just a noise a person might make with their mouth, or some ink on a page representing that noise. Finn Ronnie held a meeting among the aviation contingent to discuss survey flights in the wake of the fuel drain placed on the Avgas reserves by the search operations. Harry Darlington received no invitation and could make no input and continued working to make the Beechcraft airworthy. Then he waited for clear flying weather. When it arrived, he took the left seat and with Ike Schlossback at his right, took the Beechcraft up for its test flight. Jenny Darlington recounts her apprehension, always high while her husband flew, as ramping up several notches as the Norseman and the L5 also took off. Further notches of extra ramping up followed her spotting the Beechcraft far out over the sea ice and trailing smoke from one engine. The plane descended towards Stonington Island. Harry Darlington cut both engines while still airborne, making a dead stick landing and emerging from a smoke-filled cockpit, co-pilot Schlossback following 
his dead cigar clamped between incorrigible false teeth. With the fire extinguished, Harry Darlington noticed the absence of the other aircraft. Where Jenny thought they'd headed off in response to a mayday call from her husband, he knew they'd been sent on errands by Finn Ronnie. Perhaps this wasn't done as an act of spite, Finn Ronnie flouting Harry Darlington's explicit directive that at least one aircraft should remain on standby on the ground in case another got into trouble in the air, but it's hard not to read it as such. The explanation that we must hurry, hurry, hurry isn't an excuse in such matters of life and death contingency planning, and I read this decision to fly all three aircraft at once, particularly while the most complex one was on a test flight following an extensive program of field modification, itself made necessary by Finn Ronnie's impatience leading to the wrecking of the first Beechcraft so meticulously modified under ideal circumstances as deliberate shit-stirring, something I've never found amusing or professional in a leader. Harry Darlington headed to the Ronnie's shack for words. The slanging match played out as anyone with any experience of megalomaniacs will accurately predict. Finn Ronnie, being in the wrong on every front, threw up walls of obfuscation and rationalisation, but, by holding the trump card of final authority, dismissed Harry Darlington from the aviation program, the 3IC slot, and the rare. Engineer Hassage would replace him in the leadership framework, and Lassiter would command all survey flights in the Beechcraft. The pattern, hinted at in Beaumont and identified in Valparaiso, fell into stark relief around the dining table. Finn and Jackie Ronnie sat at the eastern end. Ike Schlossback and the Darlingtons sat at the western end. Everyone else gravitated between the two ends as their daily mood or allegiance prompted. Where laughter and conversation arose in the west, only stony silence emanated from the Ronnies. McClary tried to feng shui a resolution to the disjunct by rearranging the furniture so as to make everyone sit facing everyone else, but this one simple trick couldn't unwind a year's worth of tension. Finn Ronnie's leadership couldn't work effectively outside a military context. I doubt anyone thought particularly highly of his leadership in a military context, but at least in a naval setting, his superiors could rein in the worst of his mercurial tendencies. At Stonington Island, he held full sway to go back on his word, hold grudges, play favourites, and attempt to manipulate situations, in a fairly ham-fisted way, to his advantage. I hate manipulative people, but at least when someone's good at it, you can learn something about humanity's blind spots from observing them in action. With Finn Ronnie, it was all childishly incompetent attempts to control information flow, reneging on past agreements, and repeatedly bringing up gripes everyone else thought settled to satisfaction months ago. As a final stab at Harry Darlington, the new standing orders presenting the state of play added that no human food should be fed to dogs, at which Harry Darlington gave half his breakfast to Chinook, itself a childish act, though I read it as one born of an otherwise complete inability to kick back uphill at those kicking down. Harry and Jenny went on seal clubbing detail, skiing onto the sea ice to hunt the dog food. Ike Schlossback, as a show of solidarity for the outcast Darlingtons, cooked up a big feed of seal livers, much to Katenko's disgust. Those at the western end of the table devoured Ike's efforts with gusto, while the eastern end quietly continued on their non-stop diet of steak. 
On the 28th of September, Dr Nichols and Bob Dodson headed south from Stonington Island to make a geological survey of Cape Jeremy. Having learnt from their earlier foray on the sea ice, they carried British tents loaded onto British sledges. Their FIDS support party, Kevin Walton and Doc Butson, returned after delivering them safely to their worksite, but no one heard from the geological pair after two weeks of their proposed hundred days in the field. One of the dogs they took to Cape Jeremy, Spot, arrived back at Stonington, exhaustedly collapsing into its place on the spans. Harry Darlington urged that all other flying cease until the state of the silent geological party came to light, but, as you'd likely expect, Finronny ignored this sensible advice and pushed for results, pressing Lassiter and Adams to continue depot and resupply flights instead of search and rescue missions. Rumours arrived over the radio that Floyd Odlum held designs on flying over Antarctica, and this spurred Finronny to keep up pressure to fly and survey as much as possible. Floyd Odlum started his career as an attorney, but quickly became vice president of his primary client, Electric Bond and Share Company. He spotted the 1929 Wall Street crash coming and divested himself and the company he helped head up of a lot of utilities investments in time to save their financial bacon from the worst of the initial impact of the crash, and then used the resulting liquidity to buy up everything they sold and more at depression prices, setting Odlum up as one of the richest 10 men in America by the mid-1930s. He married Jackie Cochran, an air racing pilot who led the Women's Auxiliary Pilot Service through the Second World War, and who became the first woman to break the sound barrier after it. Her close friendship with Amelia Earhart and George Putnam, both names already holding substantial links to High Latitude's aviators, and both mentioned several times in the Ice Coffee narrative, likely led to Odlum's designs to take his money south, Ellsworth style, and do something exploring. I wouldn't be surprised if Jeff Maynard's turns up some correspondence between Odlum and Sir Hubert Wilkins in his research, as he'd certainly be the first person a rich industrialist might turn to if seeking assistance in manufacturing and exploration legacy out of whole cloth. At East Base, Harry Darlington retreated into himself. All of his experience and knowledge amounted to nothing if Finronny blocked any avenue by which to apply it and, with hindsight, it's possible to see how the rare could have played out more successfully and harmoniously if Finn Ronnie heeded the younger man's advice instead of doing the exact opposite at every opportunity, right back to dropping the first Beechcraft on its back on the wharf in Beaumont. With Harry already prone to introspection, Jenny Darlington worried her new husband might never bounce back from the dark mood settling on him, but she gave him some good news, sharing it with him at his lowest ebb they had a baby on the way. Overjoyed, Harry broke out his loot box and the couple celebrated the first Antarctic conception with dry cornflakes and the last of Harry's scotch. The son and the penguins returned to the island and while the rare situation remained dire for him, Harry Darlington's mood buoyed. With little better to do, the Darlingtons skied to the former glacier runway and dug out an entrance to the drifted over Usase aviation shack. Therein they found three frozen huskies, escaped from their explosive doom on the Usase tether lines, but unable to survive without humans hunting on their behalf. Chinook sniffed around the corpses excitedly, but went silent when the reality sank in. 
sitting back and giving out a long, lonely howl. They departed the dog tomb to find a storm on the brew and made their way downhill in increasing winds and deteriorating visibility. Roped in, Harry led them the last miles by compass bearing and Jenny nearly fell into a crevasse as its snow bridge collapsed beneath her. Dark and brooding as the East Base accommodation hut became through the rare winter, its warmth never seemed so welcoming to Jenny as on arriving from her brush with Antarctica's fickleness. The Darlingtons kept their pregnancy news to themselves, figuring Antarctic clothing and routines would keep even quintuplets hidden until the slated March departure, and anticipating negative press or sentiment to arise from the Ronnies if word got out. The Darlingtons announced their pregnancy to Don, figuring the doctor at least needed to know their news. The otherwise unshockable medical man fell silent at their revelation and agreed to keep quiet on the Darlingtons' behalf. Chinook switched allegiance from Harry to Jenny and spent many hours in Darlington's roost keeping her company through the first trimester until Finn Ronnie, perhaps bereft of any other pots to stir, once again mandated that all dogs live outside. Chinook went out on the spans but broke loose and came out second in a fight. Jim Lassiter broke up the fracas and Chinook returned, bloodied and sore, to indoor life. One ear folded its cartilage permanently damaged. Unable to discuss the baby, nominally named Pinguino, for the duration of the pregnancy, rumours about Jenny's isolation, further fuelled by whispered conversations between Harry and Don, resulted in a deputation of the Darlington's friends fronting Jenny in Darlington's roost. Having promised Harry she wouldn't tell anyone about the pregnancy, she responded to the queries of these the Darlington's staunchest allies in the face of Finn Ronnie's intransigent leadership, by eating one pickle after another out of a jar drawn from her loot box. This served to disseminate the news, allay their concerns over rumours, and inform them that they needed to keep a tight, heavy lid on their new insight. On the 10th of October, Doc Butson led out the revised trail party comprising Dougie Mason, Nelson McClary, driving John Tonkin's Paddy Darkey team, and Art Owen. Ken Butler intended leading the team, but sent Doc Butson in his stead in order to complete repairs to the Ronnie's wire photo apparatus so they could radio key images north to accompany Jackie's North American Newspaper Alliance stories, intending to then fly out and join the trail party once he got the thing working. At the foot of Sodomy Slope, a blizzard pinned the party down for three days and destroyed one of the sledges. Dougie Mason and Mac headed back towards Stonington Island to retrieve a replacement sledge, but their sledge overturned on a Sestrugus shortly after they set off, McClary breaking his collarbone and ending his trail ambitions in the ruckus. Art Owen trekked down to Stonington to fetch help, returning with Don, Andy Thompson and Kevin Walton driving his orange bastards. Andy Thompson replaced Mac in the trail party and Don applied the morphine and trussing necessary to get the injured Mac downhill once more. Andy, surprised to find himself uphill and away from his instruments and experiments in alcohol production, developed pains in his legs from the unexpected exertion of trail life. On reaching the Plateau Met Camp, he asked for a replacement. Air support allowed such swaps out 
and Jorge took his turn on the sledges as Andy returned to East Base. On the 20th of October, Dougie Mason laid a depot in Mobile Oil Inlet for the Hope Bay sledges. The news of his success and an accurate description of how to find the stores went north by radio, and the Hope Bay contingent made a start southward, safe in the knowledge their fuel and food awaited their arrival. Ship's engineer, Woody, flew out to Cape Keeler to join one of the trail parties fanning out from there, himself being replaced some days later by Port of Beaumont's second mate, Smitty. Cape Keeler became a small aviation hub with six or seven residents at any given time during the surveying. Ken Butler flew out to replace Doc Butson in early November, and the long-distance hauling kicked off. Doc Butson returned to Stonington Island in mid-November, thoroughly sick of rare pemmican and reporting that even Finn Ronnie, who oversaw its production and derided the West Coast Trail Party's reported problems with it, called in emergency beefsteaks after just four days subsisting on the stuff at the Radio City Igloo. The Norsemen and the L5 leapfrogged stores and fuel along the coast, and the sledges, mostly working at night to take advantage of harder surfaces, didn't miss a day due to inclement weather. Travel over the shelf ice gave way to travel over sea ice, allowing the capture and killing of seals for dog food. 25 and 30 mile daily distances stood as the norm. Jenny Darlington and Mac, his collarbone healed, began training the Chilean street dogs to pull in harness. While a motley collection of odd shapes and states of health, with Chinook to lead them, they gradually formed up into the only rare dog team willing to pull without a human out in front breaking trail, a practice Ted Bingham trained the Fids out of early in his leadership. The Fids trained their dogs to break their own trail and to work to voice regardless of visible goals or things to chase, making their trail parties maximally efficient and placing the dog's sensitive crevasse awareness out in front of the less alert monkeys thereby preventing many crevasse falls and the consequent tiresome hauling out, at best, and multiple dog and human deaths, at worst. The Fids rained praise on Jenny and Mac's success at drilling such mismatched animals into a coherent sledge-pulling unit, with even the Whippet taking its place in the traces. Small-minded bastard that he was, Finn Ronnie ordered the Perros shot shortly after Jenny and Mac achieved what their leader deemed impossible. As though he hadn't reached bedrock asshole already, Finn Ronnie yelled at Jenny Darlington for making herself a cup of tea outside of mealtimes. Jenny didn't tell Harry about this, but everyone present did, and the naval aviator shirt-fronted Finn in the Ronnie's accommodations. The shouting match resulted in Harry writing letters to his mother and to Admiral Richard Byrd, both denying any responsibility for the aviation program carried out under the rare. Finn Ronnie refused to send either message north. Harry petitioned the Fids that they send the messages on his behalf, and requested permission to use the BGLE hut among the Debenham Islands. Major Butler, while sympathetic, required that Finn Ronnie formally sign the Darlingtons over to the Fids before acting on either request, which Finn Ronnie, being Finn Ronnie, refused to do. Major Butler agreed that the Darlingtons could occupy the BGLE hut, but Ronnie denied them any supplies, so they remained at East Base, 
trapped by their biology and a narcissist. Finn and Jackie Ronnie and Karen Ronnie Tupek all cite Harry staying on at East Base after his dismissal as some sort of black mark against the man, but Finn Ronnie guaranteed this state of affairs by ruling out all possible alternatives. I realise Karen Ronnie Tupek is likely to feel incensed that anyone might criticise her father, whom she seems to worship, but it's possible to triangulate from several sources that Finn Ronnie was a spiteful, petty man who regularly placed his own legacy ahead of the well-being and even the safety of the people in his care. I'm not damning the man with anything other than what he put on show for all the world to see. Word came south that Floyd Odlum would not fly to Antarctica, but Finn Ronnie pressed the survey program hard regardless, and TriMet flights kicked off in early November. To load the Trimetragon cameras with their 200-foot film spools, which didn't feature a leader strip and therefore required complete darkness to avoid inadvertent exposure, Bill Laterty made a lap-mounted darkroom box in which to load and reload film cassettes while airborne. He fabricated a drift-tracking viewfinder, grinding the lens by hand, adding a drift calculation to the copious photographic notes he kept during each survey flight. Developing each exposed film required 200 gallons of water, itself requiring a lot of fuel run through the coal range to melt the requisite snow and keep it in liquid form long enough for the cold weather developing and fixing chemicals to do their work. The Beechcraft, like the aircraft used in Operation High Jump, carried a Geiger counter for detecting deposits of radioactive materials in the landscape it overflew. The Beechcraft finally went to work with Lassiter in the left seat and Bill Laterty operating his trimetragon charges. Finn Ronnie flew in the right seat to ensure all newly sighted geography received Ronnie-approved names, the most prominent among these being the Edith Ronnie Ice Shelf, now known as the Filchner Ronnie Ice Shelf, because what they sighted in the Beechcraft wasn't a separate structure to the ice shelf already named after the German. Larry Gould also received a landscape label in the form of the smaller Gould ice shelf. Richard Bird took it as a personal snub that Ronnie didn't name anything after him and resented the fact immensely. The Norseman staged fuel out to the limit of its range to extend the Beechcraft's flights and while this placed the survey flights well outside the possible scope of rescue and relief by the ground parties, at least Finn Ronnie did the dangerous bits. Shortly after these flights commenced, the missing geology team showed up, around 80 miles south of Stonington Island, just near Mushroom Island. They wrote FUD, F-U-D, in the snow, and Chuck Adams dropped them some FUD by parachute. Some weeks later, they sledged back to East Base, having navigated their way home along the coast, being sure to find each former campsite in order to reuse the tea bags left behind in days of plenty. With 90 days in the field and a sledge load of rock samples, Dr. Nichols felt well pleased with his expedition outcomes. On December 1st, Reg Freeman led the final large scale sledge operation of that season's program, taking Kevin Walton. Tommy Thompson and Ken Butler to the plateau to collect the meteorology watchkeepers and from there to press on to Mobile Oil Bay to meet the incoming Hope Bay party. Jorge and Mac, into their hundredth day on the plateau, 
showed the sledges around the extensive catacombs they dug as their tent drifted over, before joining the sledges, Mac finally getting his coveted trail experience. Jorge received reprimands for constantly unroping and wandering away from the sledges to examine cornices and cliff edges, only breaking the habit after overturning a sledge and lying pins beneath it on a crevasse lip for several minutes. They depoted Tommy and Mac at the depot at Mobile Oil Bay to await the Hope Bay team and reconnoitred a promising route to the south and east along the spine of the peninsula, a potential trail Dougie Mason worked out during numerous flights over the area. Two weeks on this new trail demonstrated it as an impossible traverse, but added a lot of survey data to the FID's achievements that season, and Reg led the party back to Mobile Oil Bay. Tommy Thompson concocted a Christmas pudding as a treat, but the container he steamed it in over the Primus exploded, leaving those willing to partake in that detestable dessert to pick bits of it off the insides of the tent with their spoons. On the 30th, the dogs gave away the approach of the Hope Bay team, growing restless some while before the sledges materialised on the horizon. Frank Elliott, John Francis, Mac Choice and Ray Aidy arrived, and emotions ran high. The Hope Bay party, finding the next tranche of food as their own supplies ran low, felt elated. The Stonington contingent felt satisfaction both at the approach of the end of their project and at their success in supporting their fellow sledges. Everyone felt excited to see new faces and to hear news of goings-on outside their immediate circle after a winter in isolation. Mac Choice brought out cigars, and Reg Freeman supplied a bottle of rum. Bacon, tinned beef stew, and tinned pineapple made the first meal together a special one, though the effect of the pineapple on pemmican-inured innards gave forth some untoward outcomes that night. The final crossing of the peninsula proved remarkably easy, reinforcing the idea in the minds of the Hope Bay Party that the Base E residents gilded the lily in reporting their trail travails. Reg Freeman and Kevin Walton did impress the Hope Bay team with a feat of navigation that landed them exactly at the depot flag they sought while travelling in near zero visibility. The Hope Bay sledges hadn't learnt to drive dogs to a compass course and found this feat remarkable, though secretly Freeman and Walton did too, as dead reckoning rarely went that well on the sledges. Jenny Darlington wrote of the arrival of the parties. Quote, that day in 1947, those of us watching, as team after team poured down off the glacier, saw a sight that may never be seen again. Six dog teams and ten men who had travelled hundreds of miles exemplified an old-fashioned art that may soon, due to the current day steam-heated exploration programs, belong to the polar past. In silence broken only by the creak of runners on snow, the huskies swept down off the glacier. The men's faces were fine-drawn, gaunt, wind-burned, almost to blackness. The dogs, though still galloping and gallant, were obviously tired, sinking down into the snow to sleep on arrival. Equipment was worn from hard use. Windproofs were torn and weathered. Yet as they came down, the dogs waving their tails like plumed banners, their coats rippling like multicoloured waves against the whiteness. An awed stillness descended on us. 
matched step by step by magnified blue shadows, the weary dogs, the bearded men, signified the pioneer concepts of strength, simplicity, and survival. End quote. The Hope Bay team covered a total of 950 nautical miles, some of which comprised depot-laying forays, and surveyed 220 miles of previously unseen coast, and checked and redrew the 250 miles surveyed by Nordenwelds expedition in 1903. Ray 80 collected rock samples, and Mac Choice made meteorological observations en route, both adding to the overall picture of Antarctica and its systems, emerging from the efforts of exploration with growing pace. Bernard Stonehouse turned on a big feed for the returnees, who entered Trepassy House to find it transforming into its 1948 requirements, John Tonkin fitting bunks in the workshop to accommodate the Hope Bay arrivals. A dispute about dog driving between the newcomers and the two-year residents saw Ray Aidy and Kevin Walton out on the sea ice with a team of the local dogs arranged in their usual fan. They drove the dogs across increasingly wide open leads in Walton's attempt to demonstrate the superiority of the fan array in exactly that activity, both men ending up in the Antarctic Swimming Club, Walton renewing an existing membership, and enjoying themselves immensely. The returned data demonstrated a fan trace team of nine dogs could cross a six-foot lead with ease and a seven-foot lead with difficulty and could not cross an eight-foot lead. As the new year arrived, the port of Beaumont remained cast in the ice of Marguerite Bay. The same uncertainty about the ice breaking out that plagued previous expeditions to the area gave the East Bay's residents a lot to think about, particularly the one in her second trimester of a pregnancy. The rare didn't viddle for a two-year stay. The seal meat supply might hold up, but the bottom of the coal supply began to show, and the fids, well sorted enough for their own ends and holding some in reserve, wouldn't let anyone starve or freeze, but couldn't be relied on to keep everyone in their accustomed comfort, no matter how slight that comfort might be, if called on to share their goods with a team twice their size through another winter. Kevin Walton Frank Elliott, Doc Butson, Bill Laterty and Bob Dodson took some time off from Stonington Island to climb mountains, selecting the local Matterhorn on the southern side of Nini Fjord as the focus of their holiday. With so much of Antarctic travel focused on avoiding mountains, the five climbers relished the opportunity to apply their skills in something other than horizontal mileage and emergency extractions, and thrilled at getting vertical. On the 25th of January, Harry took Jenny and a small coterie of close friends from both bases to the Debenhams for a picnic at the BGLE hut. Jenny rode a sledge behind Chinook while Harry skied beside, and Kevin Walton gave the Orange Bastards a run to carry the hamper. The hut, newly signposted as British property and to be used only in an emergency, remained well ordered and well stocked. The party started the Arga and thawed out some of the tin goods therein, swapping them out with the contemptibly familiar fare brought out from Stonington. Just as the sun dipped toward the horizon that evening, Jenny Darlington joined the Antarctic Swimming Club. The sledge broke through a patch of thin ice. Warm and well-fed, the smooth ride almost lulled the reclining Jenny to sleep, 
so a dunking into near-freezing seawater woke her up with a rude shock. Weighted down by newly sodden weatherproofs, it was Chinook, hauling forward as she clung to his harness, that saved her life, drawing her from the water and onto solid ice. A spot of frostbite on her nose proved the only ill effect. While a second winter at East Base began to look increasingly likely, Finn Ronnie refused to send word out to the US Navy icebreakers operating in the vicinity. While Admiral Richard Byrd only received figurehead leadership of Operation High Jump and held no responsibility in Operation Windmill, the mere association of his former leader and Major Thorn in his side with these projects made Finn Ronnie unwilling to give even the merest impression his expedition couldn't return home under its own steam. And with good reason. Radioing for the icebreakers to break the ice surrounding the port of Beaumont would give Bird and his supporters, or anyone else with an axe to grind against the Ronnies, a lot of mileage in shit-canning the rare to anyone who stood still to listen. But this stands as another example of Finn Ronnie putting his public face ahead of the well-being of those in his care. Perhaps if the Darlingtons announced their pregnancy, that would have forced their leader's hand. But they kept their counsel, and waited, and watched. Commander Ronnie began experimenting with dynamite, hoping to blast a path to freedom. The first charge generated an impressive hole 20 feet wide, but subsequent charges failed to enlarge this into anything approaching a usable channel. Ike Schlossback called time when a penguin dropped a rock at his feet. Quote, when I start being quartered by a penguin, it's time to get off the ice. Unquote. On the 10th of February, Don, more concerned about Jenny Darlington's pregnancy than his self-admittedly naive patient, urged Commander Ronnie to call on the US Navy icebreakers to intervene and give their party reprieve, citing his leader's insistence on the women coming south as holding the key to responsibility for those women's health, invoking Jenny Darlington's mystery illness to prompt the necessary radio calls for assistance. On the 15th, Finn Ronnie read out a memorandum U.S. Navy icebreakers would be in their vicinity on the 23rd of February and departing the area on the 1st of March. This electrified the East Base occupants and machinery, rock samples, bootleg booze, Don's stuffed penguins and crates of personal kit went out to the port of Beaumont behind weasels and dog-hauled sledges. The aviators broke down their charges and crated up the wings. On the 18th of February, the icebreaker's lights showed on the northern horizon. Kevin Walton harnessed up the orange bastards and hauled Finn Ronnie, Ken Butler and Ike Schlossback out to meet with the Burton Island and the Adisto. Commander Ketchum hosted his guests to a breakfast of bacon and eggs and Ike applied his local knowledge in charting a safe course for the icebreakers into Marguerite Bay, the instructions mostly comprising that they follow the trail flags thoughtfully laid out along the sea ice over the deep water for that very purpose. Most Americans love their flag and their military, and the arrival of these great grey ships, smartly turned out and pressing along at four knots, breaking the imprisoning four-foot-thick sea ice as though no stronger than eggshells, brought many tears to eyes and chokes to throats. Once the ship lay up in Back Bay, the neat sailors stared at the bedraggled band of winterers in wonder, and vice versa. As the newly arrived mariners came ashore, 
wide-eyed and cameras clicking, the locals set about packing the last of their outbound cargo before going aboard the icebreakers to enjoy food in variety denied them in their year at Stonington. Eggs, meat, vegetables, and as many cornflakes as anyone might want. The icebreakers' helicopters ran some helpful flights, in particular placing Dr Nichols and Operation Windmill physicist Dr Earl T Apfel on Adelaide Island to explode a 4,000-pound charge to note the reaction of the seismographs left in the care of the FIDS. The FIDS invited some of the ship's officers to dine at Trapassi House, breaking out the last two bottles of whiskey from the year's ration and enjoying new faces and conversation. Commander Ronnie invited those FIDS slated for relief that summer to berths aboard the United States Navy ships, but Major Butler declined the offer. The British ship would get through or the FIDS would stoic out a third winter as a unit. Radio messages went out to the John Bisco to head south at the hurry-up to take advantage of the leads generated by the American ships. While the FIDS knew they could hold their ship together for a third winter and held food and fuel sufficient to make a third winter on site comfortable, the long-termers were looking forward to heading home. Harry Darlington wanted Jenny to head north aboard the Navy ships as they fielded more comprehensive medical facilities, but in a moment underlining how much her year on the ice brought her into her own as an agent of free will and a partner rather than a subordinate to her husband. She refused, determined to stay with her man, their dog and the expedition she joined, a stark contrast to the leaf on the wind that went south because she was told to. With the coal range burning out its last feed of coal and the colours lowered, the East Base residents filed out to the port of Beaumont, which upped anchor and followed the icebreakers out of Marguerite Bay. The wooden ship's steering gear gave out, and the Burton Island took it in tow until Schlossback and Hassage could effect running repairs once out of the pack. The John Bisco arrived at the entrance to the channel left by the icebreakers the following day, but refreezing of the waters within it prevented the FIDS ship penetrating. The locals sledged out, collected their mail and returned to Trapassi House, uncertain of whether they were staying another winter or not. As they sat in their personal bubbles of missives and thoughts, the FIDS saw the Burton Island returning to the bay to make some last-minute scientific measurements, the John Bisco taking advantage of this happy oversight and steaming to the Back Bay anchorage so recently vacated by the port of Beaumont behind the American ship. The FIDS worked feverishly to unload a year's worth of stores, around 65 tonnes, in just five hours, and the John Bisco stood ready to depart, just as the Burton Island completed its scientific work, as it happens. The outgoing members said their goodbyes to their replacements, to their Trapassi housemates and to their dogs, these last tugging especially hard on the heartstrings of their trainers and drivers, and the John Bisco weighed anchor to sail north. The rare participants published papers in geology, geophysics, meteorology and atmospheric physics, and Bill Laterty's efforts with the TriMet yielded 14,000 image sets for orthographic rectification and subsequent use in cartography, ground controlled by the trail parties. Finn Ronnie finally demonstrated conclusively that Antarctica comprises a single landmass with 5,000 foot ice 
behind the Weddell Sea, precluding any connection with the Ross Sea. Far more novel, Finn Ronnie noted the recession of the Northeast Glacier, of which much more are on, but marking an early precursor to later attention given to climate change-mediated changes in Antarctica. In his book, also of which more anon in a moment, he wrote, quote, The retreat of the ice we found characteristic wherever we went. A similar shrinkage of glaciers and ice barriers has been noted in the Arctic, which points to a gradual warming of the Earth's climate. If this process ever gets to the point of melting the Greenland and Antarctic ice caps completely, the water thus released will so raise the sea level that all the world's seaports will have to move miles inland. However, since such a change would take hundreds of thousands of years, it's nothing for us to worry about. End quote. His optimistic naivety might seem amusing if we didn't daily deal with belligerently ignorant climate change deniers. On the expedition's arrival in New York, Finn Ronnie received a lovely message of congratulations from Admiral Richard Byrd because the man could lie through his teeth to keep up appearances. Penguino's real name emerged when Jenny Darlington gave birth to a son, Harry IV, and the Darlingtons later had a daughter, Cynthia. Jenny and Harry remained married his entire life, which ended in 1996. Jenny lived on until 2017. She spoke to Thomas Henderson for his documentary about Antarctic aviation, Ice Eagles, shortly before her death, and came across every bit as warm and articulate as her book, My Antarctic Honeymoon, co-authored with Jane McIlvain, painted her. She spoke lovingly of Harry and of Chinook in recounting their time together at Stonington Island, and I only just found out in reading her obituary that she learnt to fly at age 20, two years prior to first meeting Harry, and I wonder if that common ground helped foster their initial friendship. But the matter never receives attention anywhere else. Some people are full of surprises. Peterson kept the promise he made to himself while upside down in the crevasse, entering Harvest Business School before rejoining the Marines in 1951. His service in the Korean War earned him the Silver Star for Valour, and his photographic record of his service during the conflict received an eight-page article in Life magazine. Ike Schlossback features in further expeditions, as does James Lassiter. Jackie Ronnie knocked out over 100,000 words on her typewriter and sent them out over the teletype machine setting new standards for volume and readily typeset copy arising out of the far south. She and Finn had a daughter, Karen, in 1951, and that both Karen and her own children have visited Antarctica make them the first third and fourth generation Antarcticans. Karen Ronnie Tupek maintains the website ronnieantarcticexplorers.com and all of the books by Finn and one by Jackie Ronnie are available through the site. Antarctica's First Lady went to press in 2004, five years before Jackie Ronnie's death. From what's available online, the autobiography doesn't feature Jenny Darlington other than as a mention of another woman, 
and that the interpretive panels at the Stonington Island Historic Huts only note Jackie Ronnie's presence as remarkable during the rare, gives me the impression that Jenny is gradually being written out of Antarctic history. Jackie Ronnie's slated to return to the ice coffee narrative, but nowhere near as often as Finn, who's got a lot of gas left in his Antarctic tank. Though I'll mention here, he died in 1980, just so you have some temporal reference. Finn Ronnie derided Jenny Darlington's book for her use of a co-author, while secretly using a ghostwriter to help publish Antarctic Command. L. Sprague de Camp, a contemporary of Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov in the payment-per-word days of pulp science fiction writing that saw L. Ron Hubbard churn out his bricks of novels to maximise income rather than guarantee quality of output, and struggling at the time to restart a literary career interrupted by the war, took up a contract to make Finn Ronnie's copy read more smoothly than the leader's imperfect English managed, and to structure the events recounted into a more compelling narrative. De Camp's fans can spot their man's voice in the text, and he used his experience working with Finn Ronnie's manuscript to couch two stories within his own Viagens Interplanarius story series, one tale being set in an Antarctic analogue, and another posed as the experiences of a ghostwriter working for an explorer. That the rare achieved less than its size, experience quotient and equipment indicated is, in part, due to Richard Byrd's shadow looming so large over all contemporary polar effort from US interests, and in part because of the plundering of e-space materials during the US absence, and in part because of the distemper outbreak among the dogs, and in part because Finroddy wasn't a leader who inspired trust and respect. Competent on the trail and adequate as a naval captain during the war, his leadership mode didn't fit the need when in charge of a volunteer party operating on a shoestring budget brought together in haste. I don't think that's because Finroddy was a dick, though there's evidence available that he was, but more that no expedition could thrive under the circumstances he faced. Perhaps a more charismatic or adaptable leader might have made more of those circumstances, but Ronnie was Ronnie to the bone, for better or worse, and his mode didn't run to charisma or adaptability. Changing course mid-transit in response to adverse outcomes, Shackleton's key outstanding talent, wasn't Finn Ronnie's strong suit, and the vagaries of the rare's fortunes left him struggling with contingencies and personalities his leadership mode didn't manage effectively. Writing about her father at her website, Karen Ronnie Tupek cites his nationality and his naval pedigree as making him culturally difficult for American civilians to understand. And that's fair enough, but I don't think it goes all the way toward explaining why he so readily said one thing and did another, or why he seemed to take such delight in ruining other people's satisfaction, particularly when it came to shooting other people's dogs. I don't think I'd get along with Roald Amundsen or Finn Ronnie. But Bernd Balkin and Friedrich Nansen, at least before he got old and really creepy, I doubt I'd have much difficulty comprehending or heeding, so the Norwegian aspect seems a reach. I know many Norwegians, and I know many military officers and other ranks I can travel and work with effectively, so unless the combination of military and Norwegian sparks some magical and unpleasant synergy, I doubt there's much in that as an explanation as to why so few people who worked with him on the ice thought highly of Finn Ronnie. 
Some people are just ornery and lack the people skills to recognise it or hide it. Bird was a bigger arsehole, but managed to conceal the worst aspects of it behind a veneer of gentility and apparent competence. Finn Ronnie, while far more competent, didn't ever try to hide that he hated losing, even in a game of cards, and that he delighted more in other people's losing than he did in winning. To give him the final word on the rare, here's Finn Ronnie writing in Antarctic Command. Quote, While Amundsen had investigated his men for six months before picking them for one of his trips, I hadn't time to observe the temperamental suitability of my people before choosing them. As a result, I got a sharp-tongued fellow who sneered at everything, a couple of prima donnas concerned entirely with their own glory, a jolly kleptomaniac, a modest, hard-working member who brooded unhappily the whole time, a spoiled youth who flew into tantrums when he couldn't have what he wanted, a brilliant individualist who insisted on doing everything his own way, even when it was the wrong way, a lazy cuss who did little besides sit around and talk sex, a politician who demanded a vote on every decision. So it's not surprising that we had some long smouldering feuds, quite a few open quarrels, and a couple of cases of disciplinary action. From what I've seen of explorers, I know I could have done much worse in my selections, and compared to some expeditions I've been on, I assure you that our party was one big happy family. End quote. John Tonkin's prescience in taking the 2IC slot ahead of the base leader role served everyone at base E well. His calm optimism and quietly goading humour acting as a catalyst for a very cordial year at Trapassi House. As his close companions of two years departed, John Tonkin stayed on at Stonington, keeping things ticking until the second relief ship arrived with its replacement aircraft and the full complement of new fits. He became engaged to and married Heather Sedgwick, secretary to Sir Miles Clifford, in the time it took the first vids to reach the UK. They had four children and retired to Mornington, near where I grew up. In his obituary for Tonkin, Kevin Walton wrote, quote, In my life I have been privileged to have crossed paths with some remarkable natural leaders in all walks of life, from full admirals to tramps. There is no doubt that Tonkin heads the lot. He was a remarkable leader and a remarkable man. End quote. Of the many people I write and speak about in this series, John Tonkin stands out as one of those I'd most like to have an opportunity to share a meal with. I decommissioned the time machine five years from now, because of things that never happened, because I decommissioned the time machine five years from now but it's tempting to chuck that leg of the trousers of time for an opportunity to meet a wise and humane Antarctic veteran who lived his nine lives to the fullest. Many of the fids will make repeat appearances in the series, so I'll leave off the breakfast club clothes there. The British government asked to buy the East Base buildings in 1948 under the guise of concern that the Argentine or Chilean visitors might establish an overwinter presence there on the cheap. The US State Department, still technically owners of the buildings, refused to countenance a sale as they didn't want to cede what territorial credibility the USASA and the RARE established for them at Stonington Island. With Ronnie unable to convince the powers at home to keep a skeleton staff on site through the 1948 winter, 
the buildings ended up falling into British hands anyway, eventually serving as a seal store for the dog food cache. In 1949, Finn Ronnie put forward a proposal to establish a ring of bases around Antarctica to better serve aerial photography and characterising the entire continental perimeter. Secretary of State George Marshall couldn't get behind it. As an alternative, Ronnie proposed using the two wind-class icebreakers that helped his expedition leave Stonington Island to establish a single base in Gould Bay in the Weddell Sea, hoping to make an aerial survey of the regions east of Edith Ronnie Land. He put the idea to Samuel Whitmore Boggs, but the Department of State Geographer, by then serving in the Defence Department's Research and Development Board, a precursor to the National Science Foundation, felt that by moving the area of interest away from established footholds in Marguerite Bay and the Ross Sea, the plan ceded what territorial credibility the USA presently held. While Gould Bay lay outside the Chilean and Argentine claims, they still lay within the boundaries of the Falkland Island dependencies and moved into the coastal margin claimed by Norway. Boggs pressed Finn Ronnie to go ahead with establishing a toehold presence in the Gould Bay coast in the 1949-50 Austral summer, with an eye to beginning mapping work the following year, but the requisite icebreakers weren't available for exploration purposes at the time. Dialogue to seek making a toehold start in the 1950-51 Austral summer came to nothing, as the Korean War took all US Navy attention for the first three years of the 1950s but Finroni's commitment to accurate cartographic data gathering placed him high in the regard of US geographic and scientific bodies. Finroni recognised rigour and precision never ranked high among the values and goals of Richard Byrd's outings and brought his own meticulously gathered data to the fore at every opportunity as an important point of difference between himself and his former leader. With science increasingly serving as the promoted motivation for Antarctic endeavour, this proved a canny manoeuvre. When the USA looked south again, Finroni's name sat high on the list of former explorers that nation's interested parties sought insight from. <laughs>